Breaker. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Alastair Austin. Thirteen. We miss the first tram, but the second clips the back end of the Yaris. I hear a crunch of metal and smash of brake lights. The car shunts and spins 360. I wrestle back control and keep driving. I look in my mirrors. The cops are blocked off by the passing trams. We've got a couple of seconds before they get a fix on us again, so I skid left into a tight and tiny alley. It's lined with big square industrial bins, blue and orange and overflowing. The alley leads straight into the heart of Chinatown. I guess this is as good a place as any, so I slam on the brakes, ram the gear lever into reverse, back the car up and to the right, fast, tight, between two of the bins. I kill the lights and we wait. The kid dares to breathe again, removes his hand from his eyes. I look in the mirrors, hear the cry of the sirens, see the flashing lights blast past the mouth of the alley. The sirens fade into the distance, but the chopper is still in the area. I can hear the churn of its rotors bouncing off tightly packed brick buildings. I peer through the windscreen. The blinking red light of the chopper is drifting too, following the cops. See, I say to the kid, pigs do fly. He doesn't laugh. No one ever laughs. That's not going to stop me doing the joke. Get out, I say, squeezing myself through the doorframe. A cold breeze blows down the pitch dark alley. It stinks of rotten food. As the kid gets out of the car, still a little shaken, I take hold of him by the arm. I grip him tight. He bleats in pain. Just so you don't do a runner, I say. It's for your own good. The kid shakes his head. I ignore him and march him fast out of the alley, left, then across the road and up a street. Chinatown is dead, but full of the smell of dim sum and noodles and fried pork and... Christ, I'm hungry. We stop outside Blessed Thai Massage, the place marked by a glowing white sign with fancy gold lettering and a pretty young woman with pebbles on her back. The kid pulls a face. A massage parlour. Show up and mind your head, I say, steering him through an open steel door, through a low-hanging doorway, down a set of wonky red steps. It's warm inside and smells of lilies, a small reception area with a walnut colour scheme. The faint sound of pipes and plucked strings. You know, Far East kind of stuff. The kind of thing the prison shrink used to try and get me into. Said it would calm me down, as if I was caving other cons' heads in because I was angry. I told him I'm not the one who starts things. I just specialise in ending them. The other guy has to swing first. And when you're in the nick, there's always some animal or other trying to shank you in the kidney or bite you on the nose. Bum you in the shower? Well, that's another story. Back to this one. I haven't been here in a while. I see they've spruced the place up. They've got a tropical fish tank and fake black leather armchairs to wait in. Folded white towels on a small arcing counter, but no one on reception. I push the kid along a dim, narrow corridor. There's a small office at the end behind a frosted door, then a room either side. Massage rooms one and two. Room one is to the left, I try the door. There's an empty massage table and nothing else, so I turn the brass knob on the next door and push it open. Me and the kid stop in the doorway. A fat man on his back, red and sweaty. A white towel folded under his head for a pillow. Another one thrown over his crown jewels. His eyes are closed. 
a big grin on his chops as a woman's hand tosses him off under the towel. The hand belongs to an arm. The arm leads up to a brunette blonde dressed in a crisp white uniform, one with a collared top and a tight skirt down to the knees, her hair tied up and by the looks of it, a white latex glove peeping out above the towel on her wanking hand. She stares into space, bored, lazy puffs on a cigarette. Yep, it's the mother of my child. 14. A cough to get Mandy's attention. Sorry to interrupt the tender moment. She looks at me and sighs. Never heard of knocking? I shake my head in disgust. Sigs and happy endings. Couldn't even last a day. Mandy tears the cigarette out of her mouth. She blows a plume of it my way. What am I supposed to do? Tell Mr. Chung no. That's why these sad sacks come in here. Hey, the man on the table says, eyes open. Not you, sweetheart, Mandy says between drags. You just relax. The man closes his eyes, the smile returning to his face. Anyway, you can't talk, Mandy says. What have you done this time? Don't know what you're on about. Come on, Charlie. Why else are you here if not to hide out? She looks at my suit. I heard the sirens. You skip out on court again. I don't have a comeback. She's got me nailed. Ah, the truth comes out, she says. Mr. Pot and Kettle. That's where you're wrong, I say. Fucking did the right thing, didn't I? Mandy laughs, Sig hanging from her lips. You, the right thing. It's true, I say. Um, do you mind? Mandy's client says, propping himself up on his elbows. I've paid good money for this. Sorry, love, Mandy says, speeding up the job, towel jerking up and down. Uh, this is sick, the kid says. Who's the young lad? Mandy asks. Long lost son, you've got enough of them. For the thousandth time, Mand, I don't sleep around. Mandy narrows her eyes at me as she brings the fat man to a climax. The kid turns his back and sticks his fingers in his ears. The guy on the table looks at me as he shoots his boots. The kid's right, this is sick. Mandy stubs out her cigarette and drops the latex glove in a bin. The guy pulls his crumpled office clothes on. Mandy dumps the towels in a wicker laundry bin in the corner. She rinses her hands, lights him a smoke, and he leaves. So what's up? She asks, resting her rear end against the massage table. You hear about that thing at the Renaissance Hotel? I ask. Yeah, it's been on the news, why? I look at the kid. This is the witness? She asks. Saved his life? I say, surprised by the swell of pride I get in my chest. You knock me out and kidnap me, the kid says. I shrug. You say potato. So what happened? She asks. Better you don't know, I say. Is Chung around? Next door, Mandy says, leading us out of the room. She closes the door and hurries back down the corridor past reception. She walks halfway up the stairs, sticks her head out on street level both ways, pulls the steel door shut and locks a bolt in place at the top and bottom. She walks back up the corridor. We were closing anyway, she says. Come on. Mandy leads us towards the back office. Just before, there's a white panel in the wall. Mandy pushes it open and beckons us through. I shove the kid into the dark, tight space ahead of us. I have to bend double to fit through. But a few metres on, Mandy leads us through another door into a bright, noisy kitchen. 
clattering pans and kitchen hands laughing and shouting in what I guess is Chinese. Mandy pushes through a pair of white swing doors with porthole windows. There's a buffer zone from the smells and sounds of the kitchen. Two more swing doors ahead of us painted black. Mandy leads us into a place I'm familiar with, just not from the server's entrance. The Dancing Dragon, an intimate bar and restaurant, traditional china red lanterns hanging from the ceiling, matching red art on the wall with black Chinese writing. It's the early hours of the morning already, so the place is empty. Paul Chung is a second-generation immigrant, Beijing-born but with a Manchester accent. He sits at a table with a couple of other men in their fifties, except he looks younger, jet black hair and a face free of creases. He wears a charcoal t-shirt under a designer black suit. He chows down with his buddies on a banquet in the centre of a large circular table. What is it with you bosses? I say. You're always stuffing your faces. That's not true, Chung says, setting down a bowl of noodles and a set of chopsticks. Sometimes we drink and gamble. He stands and shakes my hand. Good to see you, friend. He looks at Mandy, stood beside me. You still here? Had a couple of late-nighters, she says. Would take a seat, eat something. Chung clicks his fingers and a young male waiter on standby glides over and pulls out a chair. Mandy sits down and loses herself in the menu. Chung is one of the nice guys. Okay, he may have the odd bloke bumped off, cut in half or dissolved in a tank of acid but he does it quick and quiet, with a courteous smile, you know. Manners don't cost anything, that's what I always say. He looks at me, then at the kid. So what's going on, Breaker? I didn't call you, so there must be something up. Job went tits up. I say, Let me guess, Rodenko? How do you know? Word spreads fast. Chung speaks to his two mates, something in Chinese. They get up and move down a couple of tables, taking their food with them. Here, Chung says, offering us a seat. We sit down. The waiters approach with plates, bowls and chopsticks. I ask for a couple of forks and spoons. I spin the centre of the table round and scoop some sticky rice into a bowl, sweet and sour chicken on top. I turn to the kid. What do you want? He shakes his head. Nothing. I guess he's not in the mood. Listen, I say. If you don't eat something, it's a sign of disrespect. And that man across from you is the head of the Chinatown Mafia. He looks at Chung. Chung plays along, raising an eyebrow, giving the kid the look. The kid swallows hard. Maybe just a little, he says, putting a solitary salt and pepper prawn on his plate. He nibbles at it as me and Chung talk. So what can I do for you? Chung asks. I was hoping for some protection. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Not for me, for the kid. I say. Chung dabs his mouth with a napkin. You know I can't do that. You owe me, I say, gobbling up the chicken. And if there's anything else you need, I'll be happy to oblige. But I've got the community to think about. We can't afford another war here and I haven't got the manpower. You know how it is. This is where flying solo can hurt you. If I was one of Chung's guys, he wouldn't hesitate to tool up. Thought I'd ask... I say as a waiter brings over a dish fresh from the kitchen for Mandy. Chung tears a bun into and mops up some sauce. Look, we'll lock the doors. You can lie low here for the rest of the night. But if anyone comes knocking, no guarantees. Thanks, Paul. It'll give me time to think. I say as the kid loads up his plate and bowl from the centre of the table. This stuff's good, he says through a beard of noodles. Best food in Chinatown, 
Mandy says. Chung smiles. There's always time for a good meal. He stands up from the table, dumps his napkin, shakes my hand. Good luck, Breaker. Chung shouts some instructions to the staff before leaving the restaurant with his pals. I should call my mum, the kid says. Uh-uh, I say. You're not calling anyone. In fact, give me your phone. No, the kid says. I grab him by the front of his hoodie. Give it here. Charlie, Mandy says. Leave the poor lad alone. He's been through enough. I let the kid go. Why do I still let her tell me what to do? I've got to stop letting her boss me around. I pour out three glasses of water from a large glass jug. The staff come out of the kitchen, coats on, ready for home. They say goodnight and disappear, leaving only a few lights on in the restaurant. I push a glass over to the kid. There's one thing I don't get about you, I say. You're from the estates, right? You know how things work, why testify? The kid chews his food like he's thinking about it. It was the right thing to do. The right thing to do would have been to keep your trap shut. How bloody noble, Charlie, Mandy says, rolling her eyes. It would have been, I say. I bet the guy they shot was a low life anyway. I didn't say nothing at first, the kid says. But I couldn't sleep at night. I felt better after I agreed to do it. And how do you feel now, I ask. The kid puts down his fork, takes a drink, turns it back on me. Why did you do what you did? In the hotel? Truth is, I'm still trying to figure that one out. As I'm about to speak, his phone rings. He pulls it out of Eugene's pocket. Don't answer it, I'm about to say. But too late. I snatch the phone off the kid before he can talk, put it on speaker, my free hand over the kid's mouth. Danny, a man says on the other end of the line. It's Detective Price. I tear my hand from the kid's mouth. You know him? I whisper. The head of the witness protection unit, the kid says. Danny, are you there? What do you want? I ask. Who am I talking to? Price asks back. Never mind that, I say. What do you want? I check my watch. You've got ten seconds to spit it. Is Danny there with you? Is he okay? Seven seconds. I'm here, the kid says. I'm safe. Where are you now? The detective asks. I'm asking the questions here, I say. Look, we just won the boy back safe. I take it you're the other man who broke into the hotel suite. I might be, I say, checking my watch again. Then I assume you mean no harm to Danny. What do you think, Sherlock? Well, I can take him off your hands for you. Give him the protection he needs. You're talking about a handover? Just me, Price says. There's a mole in my unit and half the force is in Rodenko's pocket. Yeah, I put him there, I say. Then you name the time and place, I'll come alone. I think fast. I look at the kid, he nods. Can't wait to get away from me. Well, I can't wait to get rid of him either. Okay, I say. Me is in one hour. There's a mullet story behind Portland Tower. I cut the detective off before he can say another word. I check my watch. I think we beat the clock. No doubt someone was tracing the call. Right, best eat up then, I say, scooping more chicken and rice into my bowl. Looks like you're off the hook. Fifteen. A trio of black BMW 5 Series saloons cruise nose to tail through the streets of Manchester. Isn't this overkill? Freddy asked, wedged in the passenger seat of the lead car, 
He picked at a white dressing over his recently reset nose. It's only one guy. Rodenko snorted from the back. The same one guy who busted you up without taking his coat off. Caught me by surprise, that's all. Yeah, sure. Tony, the driver said, his face illuminated by a neon blue dash. Freddy glared at Tony. Tony shut up fast. You didn't know him in the wild old days, Rodenko said. There is a reason I hire him. Ah, he's all reputation, Frogger said, sitting to the right of Rodenko in the back seat. A thick bandage wrapped around his left hand. Why don't we just do a drive-by, Tony said. Find the arsehole and put a bullet in him. The same for the kid. Because a bullet's too good, Rodenko said, squeezing the handle of the baseball bat in his lap. Sounds like a plan to me, said Frogger, just as his phone lit up with a jaunty tune in his jacket pocket. He took the call. Okay, got it, Frogger said, coming off the phone. The word is he's in Chinatown. Which part? Rodenko asked. Dunno, but that's the word. Rodenko leaned forward in his seat. Chinatown, Tony. Tony indicated left and pulled a sharp U-turn. As the lead BMW span onto the opposite side of the road, the other two cars followed, supercharged engines accelerating as one. Inside the lead car, Freddy slipped a pair of brass knuckle dusters on each ogre-like hand. He laughed to himself. I'm really going to enjoy this. 16. I stand with Mandy inside the massage parlor reception. She pulls on a silver puffer jacket with a fake fur hood. She has a key to the steel doors in hand. I look at her face, eyes lit a turquoise blue by the fish tank. What? She says. Something on my face. Once I get the kid safe, I'm going to have to leave. And, Mandy says. I grab her and plant one on her lips, like kissing a dead shark. I let her go. She pulls her face. What was that for? Just checking something. I say. Well, here, she says, grabbing the last remaining mint from a bowl and handing it over. You need it more than me. I suck on the mint. Wait a few minutes before we leave, I say. We're going right, so you go left. She nods. What do I tell Cassie? Tell her. I don't know. Tell her I'm trying. Mandy lifts her eyebrows to the ceiling. I push the kid up the steps and pull the steel door open. I look around. It's cold, my breath fogs the air. No sign of cops, the whole town bright with neon signs, but low on people. I give Mandy the thumbs up and we split. Walk natural, but keep your head low. I say as me and the kid move along the street. We've got a five-minute walk ahead of us, out of Chinatown, across Portland Street, to a multi-story car park tucked away behind an office tower. Somewhere the searchlights and thermal imaging won't find us. I keep a discreet hand on the kid's elbow as we pass a strip club. It's quiet in the early hours. So quiet, I hear the faint buzz from the horizontal pink neon sign outside. Two sumo-shaped bouncers stand on the door. They look tired. We're just heading past the main square in Chinatown when I hear squealing tires and the sound of V6 engines. As we cross the road, I see bright headlights converging on us. From the left, the right... Three BMW saloons screeching to a halt. The doors fly open and big guys in dark jackets and hoodies jump out. Freddy and Frogger too. Bollocks. 
I say, stopping the kid in his tracks. Run. I turn and push along into a sprint. We double back, Rodenko's men catching up, pumped up, tooled up. The only place I see open is the strip club. The bouncers are already shitting their black pants, shutting the doors. I run full pelt and shoulder barge my way in before they can lock us out. I force my way through, the bouncers try and push me back. I knock one of them hard and grab an empty beer bottle left on a ledge. I smash it over the other bouncer's head. It buys me a second to drag the kid in behind me. But there's no time to lock the doors. The charging pack are right up our arses. I run the kid down a short flight of stairs and straight past the window where you're supposed to peer for entry. Into a large room bathed in pink and purple light. Crystal balls hanging from the ceiling. A series of circular platforms with thin Far Eastern girls hanging off poles. A mix of late night chances with fivers held out, ready to stuff them in a G-string. I look for a way out. All I see is a long bar lit white on the back wall. I don't see an emergency exit and I don't want to get suckered from behind. So I push the kid over to the bar, knocking a waitress flying with a tray of drinks. The kid shouts at me in panic. What do we do? I pick him up by his hoodie and the belt on his jeans. The barman scarpers. I drop the kid behind the bar and tell him to stay down. I stand with the small of my back against the bar top. Rodenko's men pile in. Here we go. 17. The first one to have a go is a young skinhead in a green bomber, armed with a carpet knife. I pick up a high stool from the bar and clock him hard in the face. He spins away. I think the stool will make a good weapon, but he's yanked from my hands by Freddy. He swings a knuckle-duster fist, but the guy moves like he's made of cement. I duck and dive a fist of my own up under his ribs. He wheezes and lurches forward. No time to enjoy the look on his face as he rests on the bar. Two more guys wade in. One cracks me on the chin, another boots me in the side. I grab the second guy's foot and swing him off to one side, into a table and chairs. I send the other one packing with a jaw-breaking uppercut. As Freddy recovers from the rib cracker, I ram his face with both hands into the edge of the bar. That just about kills him. He crashes to the sticky black floor of the club like a giant redwood. Rodenko has five more guys, and then there's the boss himself alongside Frogger, patting a baseball bat in the flat of his palm. With a second to get my bearings, I notice the club emptying out. I also get a chance to reach inside my jacket and pull out my gun. The next guy who comes at me is a real ugly bastard, face like an old potato. I do his wife a favour and shoot him in the chest, point blank. Fuck you and good night. I try and remember how many shots I have left. Doesn't matter. A big burly character wrestles me for control. The clip blasts out into the floor. I drop the empty gun as the guy gets me in a headlock, squeezes the bloody air out of me. Hold him still, Frogger says, pulling out a pistol of his own, no silencer, lining up square between my eyes. As he's about to pull that trigger, I hear a heavy glass thunk. Frogger goes starry-eyed and drops to the floor. His pistol spills away under a gap at the base of the bar. I look up and see the kid, holding a big magnum of champagne. Still in the grip of the big guy behind, I hold out my hands. The kid throws the bottle. I catch it by the neck and swing it over my shoulder. The heavy end smashes in my hands over the big guy's head. He drops off me, covered in blood, bubbles and broken glass. Right, that's it. I'm officially pissed off. The remaining three goons surround me. One with a metal bar, I make light work of him. 
a thundering right hook, a snap of an arm, a headbutt in an eye and a hand on that metal bar. I pull the owner towards me and crack him with the point of an elbow. I pick him up and drop him on his back on the edge of a dancing platform. I take a breather and look around, the music still beating and spotlights spinning, but the whole club empty except for a floor full of bodies. I turn and see Redenko. He's got his bat, but he hasn't got the balls to use it. The cocky bastard should have brought a gun, not a lump of wood. He backs up as I walk towards him. I feel a presence behind me, a giant one. I look over my shoulder. Freddy is on his feet again, lumbering forward. I pick up a wooden chair and smash it against the nearest dancing platform. The chair falls to pieces but leaves me with a broken leg in hand. The end of it sharp and splintered. A turn as Freddy lunges. I ram the sharp end into his guts. He staggers back, the chair legs sticking out of him, blood spilling all over the floor. I turn and see Rodenko disappearing through the main entrance. The kid cowers half down behind the bar. I call him over, for once he doesn't argue. He hops over the bar top and picks his way through the bodies. He runs behind me as we pass the pier window and up the stairs. The bouncers are halfway up the street with everyone else from the strip club. Girls included, grabbing onto their naked knockers and shivering in the cold. I see Rodenko running in the opposite direction. I give chase but he makes it to one of the abandoned BMWs before I can catch him. He steps on the accelerator, all the doors to the beamer still wide open. He swings his own door shut and pulls the car around me, revving hard up the road and almost mowing down the people in the street. I think about that scumbag Frogger lying limp in the strip club. I could return right now and finish him off. Finish them all off. Or chase Redenko and ram him off the road. Set fire to the car and watch him burn. I feel the old breaker wanting to bust out to the surface. I take a deep breath and push him back down. I do this for the money now, not for the fun. Besides, there's no time for all that shit. I've got a witness to hand over to Detective Price. I tell the kid to get into one of the cars. I throw the rear door shut and climb behind the wheel. The daft bastards left the keys in the ignition and the engine running. I slam my door closed and tell the kid to belt up. Won't be long until the cops are on the scene, so I reverse the car at speed and spin it around. I drive the wrong way down the one-way system and force an oncoming taxi to swerve to the side of the road. I pull out across Portland Street and down a couple of side roads. We enter a concrete multi-story. I stop and grab a ticket. A yellow barrier rises. I take the ramp up a couple of floors, tyres squealing at speed. Sure enough, I see a shadowy figure at the far end standing next to a car. The headlights dipped. I roll the beamer slow towards him. As we get closer, I see the cars are grey Mondeo, the pool car kind detectives drive around in. I bring the BMW to a stop a good twenty yards away. I leave the headlights on him. He blinks into the light. I recognise him from the reception of the Renaissance Hotel. Scruffy beard and hair his tie thin and loose around his neck, a blue barber jacket left open. No doubt he's got a piece holstered inside. Still, he's good to his word. He came alone. That him? I asked the kid. Are you a detective price? The kid nods, hope in his eyes for the first time. Yeah, it's him. Thank Christ for that. I say, dipping the headlights. Let's get this over with. 18. 
We meet Detective Price in the headlight beams of our cars, engines still running. You okay, Danny? The detective asks the kid. Think so, yeah? And come on, Price says. Let's get you somewhere safe. The kid steps forward. I pull him back by the shoulder. One second, I say, talking to the detective. I want guarantees. Bryce seems edgy. He keeps tapping his foot. Come on, you know I can't do that. He says, taking out a cigarette and lighting it. I want to know the bastards in blue aren't going to be on my arse. I say. He blows smoke out of his nostrils and laughs. I'm not the chief constable and you're a kidnapper. Not to mention a cop killer. I didn't kill anyone. You think they give a shit? Bryce says. He takes another drag. Look. I'm not going to arrest you. Damn right you're not. But I can't promise another cop won't, Bryce continues. If I were you, I'd hand over the kid right now and get out of here. If you want the cop killer, I left him sparked out on the floor of a strip joint in Chinatown. Big pink sign, you can't miss it. My job is to protect my witness, not to round up Russian scum. I hesitate a moment, hand stopping the kid from walking. There's an awkward silence. I look Bryce in the eye. He looks straight at me and smokes. He knows he's said too much. Look, what are you waiting for? The kid says, getting impatient. Detective Price's witness protection? Let me go. I want to go. Shut up and wait here, I tell him. I approach the detective. I want to test something. A theory forming in my mind. Price tenses up a hand straying up the zip of his jacket. He wants to reach for his gun. As I get close, he drops the sick and goes for it. I snatch his hand out, empty. I twist his fingers and plant him against the driver door of the car. I take out his service weapon, empty the clip and toss the piece away. I reach inside his jacket pocket and find a phone. It's locked, just a bunch of dots. I twist harder on the hand. He cries out in pain. The kid walks over. What the fuck are you doing? Let him go. I'll let you go in a minute right off the roof of this car park. The kid shuts his trap, but he kicks out at the front bumper of the Mondeo. How do I get into your phone? I ask Bryce. Piss off, he says. I twist harder. He shrieks. All right, just make an L. Make a what? An L, you fucking idiot. You make an L with your thumb. Oh. I say, unlocking the phone. I'm a bit shit with these things. I tap through to his call list. Boom. I knew it. Copper bullshit always smells stronger. I put the phone on speaker. I hit the call button. The phone lights up. Price? A deer's sounding frogger answers, as if he's just woken up from a long nap. I cut off the call before Price can talk. You can't have known for sure the killer was Russian, I say. Unless you were Frogger's contact, the inside man. I let the guy up. He's not going anywhere. He shakes out his wrist. You arranged our way in, I continue. And you told Rodenko we were in Chinatown. You were supposed to be in and out clean, Price says. How was I to know Frogger would go nuts? Because it's Frogger, I say. And he's Lithuanian, not Russian. The kid is furious. He shoves Price back against the car. So all this time you've been pretending to be some fucking mate to me? And you were one of them? Why? The universal answer, 
Bryce said, shaking his head. Fucking money. The kid flips out. Shit, so what now? Give me a minute. I say, I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm a fly on a spider's web. The more I fight against it, the more tangled up I get. I'll tell you what he's going to do, Danny, Price says. First he's going to hand you over, then he's going to help me get you in the boot of my car. He's the only one protecting me, the kid says. Why would he do that? Because if he doesn't, Price says, regaining his swagger, it means he either goes on the run with you and gets done for kidnapping. And the oar? I say. The oar is even better. The kid testifies he saw you pull the trigger on the two cops. Double homicide. A man with your record. Price clicks his tongue. Ouch. But he didn't do it, the kid says. I'm not going to testify to that. The detective lowers his voice. You will when we've got your fucking mum tied to a chair, soaked in petrol. Bryce lights another cig as if to make the point. The kid starts yelling and swinging at the detective. I hold him back by the hood. I know, Rodenko. The petrol thing is the least of what they'll do. And I can see in the kid's eyes he'll bleat on me to save his mum and sister. And when he's fingered me for those cops, they'll hire someone like me but from out of town. And there'll be a tragic accident involving young Danny here. It'll be reported on page 20 of the evening news. Yep, the pair of us will be tomorrow's fish and chip paper. Oh, and Charlie, Price says, you want to see your daughter again, don't you? What does that mean? I ask. Don't play as dumb as you look, Price says. Shit, he's really got me. I pause a moment. I grab a tighter hold of the kid. Open the boot, I say to Price. The kid can't believe it. What? What are you doing? Smart move, Price says, stooping inside the driver door. He releases the boot. The kid fights like hell, so I scoop him off his feet and carry him kicking and screaming to the rear of the Mondeo. You got anything to tie him up with? I ask Price. He undoes his tie from around his neck. I lower the kid in the boot. I push his face into the black carpet, muffling his screams. Bryce binds the kid's flailing ankles with his tie. He holds him down while I remove my own tie. I use it to fix his wrist tight behind his back. Bryce has a pair of handkerchiefs zipped up inside an outside pocket of his jacket. You got a sniffle or something? I ask. Comes in handier crime scenes, he says, tossing me one of the hankies. As he scrunches one up into a ball, I twist the other long and thin. Bryce forces his handkerchief inside the kid's mouth. He holds it there while I tie mine around the back of the lad's skinny neck. I make sure it's fixed secure. The kid looks up at me, big eyes full of tears and terror. I shrug at him. Sorry, kid. If there was any other way. Detective Price slams the boot shut. He extends a hand. No hard feelings. I leave him hanging. Price climbs behind the wheel of the Mondeo. He rolls past me as I walk back to my car. He winds down his window. I'll square things with Rodenko. Try and throw my colleagues off your scent. It makes me sick, but I thank him. I have to keep the Rodenko mob sweet from now on. Price winds up his window and accelerates out of the car park. I'm not far behind, heading out of town fast taking a lesser-travelled route out of the shit where the pigs aren't checking.
I see the chopper hovering in the distance, traveling in the opposite direction. There's no way I can go home, so I decide to head for the airport. Catch an early morning flight. I'm smart enough to always keep my passport on me. You never know when you're going to have to skip the country for a while. Yeah, a nice Spanish break where I've got connections. By the time the sun comes up, this'll all be over. <laughs>